find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. Today we are going to talk about one topic I honestly don't know that much about, which is Parkinson's disease. We have a guest who has written her master's thesis on this disease and has researched the neurocorrelates on it. And I honestly can't really say a lot about a personal relation to it because I don't know anyone who has it or I just know some, well, things I've heard in lectures or read or, well, just stumbled upon, but never really gotten into it. So I'm really excited to talk to uh, our guest today, who is uh, Elisa Pecola. And, well, we are going to learn, I think, a lot in today's episode. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. And now, as always, we like to play our little welcome game where we, for, or where I start uh, sentences and we want you to spontaneously continue them. <laughs> okay. And uh, the first question would be, as a kid, I always wanted to be. Um, a collectionist or a lawyer? Okay. A collectionist, what for? Um, so basically, um, as a child, I was extremely introverted, but with quite some loud ideas. So what gave me joy was to collect pencils. Because first of all, they were really cheap, which was assuring me that I could get a new item every week, right? There mm -hmm. was some, you know, certainty about that. And I had these white mugs on my desk. And at the end, I had 300 or something like that. And I was also collecting aquaria with mm. this keychain. And I loved to have them hanging on my wall. And they were playing with the morning light and creating this representation on the wall. And it was really, I don't know, it gave me a sense of peace and quiet. And that's why I will always like to collect beautiful things and take care of them. But I mean, the loud part was related to the fact that I also used to be a writer. I started to write poems when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit early, but yeah. I actually uh, published the first one when I was 11. And um, that was my kind of secret warrior side, so to say. And they were about freedom and about human rights. So sometimes I was putting this white shirt on that I used to have and I was playing the lawyer with my mother that was like sitting on the couch and listening to me. She used to say, oh my God, I just you are, you have very strong topics. I'm not sure I'm ready to see you as an adult. And she is still not sure she can handle it, but we can try. <laughs> so yeah. Nice. Okay, the next question is, if I was an emoji, I would be? Oh God, uh, a slice of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It depends on the moment. Maybe a red balloon, a sunflower, a crying emoji. I am not sure. So you would be a whole emoji collection. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. You need to give me like a few of them because it really depends on the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but I think I can really relate to like the red balloon thing mm -hmm. because it's also a lot used, but I've never even considered someone answering that uh, ever. But yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, It's nice that you did. Uh, the third sentence would be, my favorite thing to do on a day off is? Um, I love the nature, so um, I would love to go to the forest and pick mushrooms. The legal one, okay? The one that we can <laughs> cook <laughs> and safely eat with some friends. 
Um, just grab a cappuccino in the city in this very old-fashioned cafes, basically, and read my book. Um, do some yoga, really standard, quiet stuff, I will say. But I also need, I, I need something that is literature-related or visual art-related um, and something that allows me to express myself. That's my concept of... Um, of a good, nice, non-working day. Yeah, do you still write your poems? Um, I do, but the style is slightly different. So when I was, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with rhymes. Everything was rhyming, and I was also writing poems for my best friends. And to be honest, I received one a few days ago, and oh my god, it was so kitsch and cute at the very same time. Um, now I feel like a small, like Thomas Dern Elliot, I will say. So it's a stream of consciousness, a similar to, similar, I mean, it's inspired to James Joyce. So it's, I feel like I combine journaling and writing poems all together. So it's a form of liberation for me and the form of expression as well. So they got a little bit more complex when it comes to the vocabulary that I'm using and I left rhymes behind. So the structure is less... Uh, the melody doesn't sound like a song any longer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Do you write them in English or? It depends on the moment. Um, sometimes I write them in Italian, sometimes in English, and I also wrote one in German. And oh, nice. I tried something in French when I was studying French at school. That's But impressive. <laughs> <laughs> It's just because you haven't seen them. Um, <laughs> they are very, very basic. But I feel like it depends on the um, the emotion involved. So, of course, Italian is my mother tongue. I feel like the complexity that I can express when I'm using my mother tongue will always be something that I cannot get with other languages. Uh, but I moved to Germany five years ago and I've been uh, using mainly English because there were a lot of challenges for me, new things to learn. It was a little bit of a cultural shock, okay, I won't deny that. Um, and I wasn't ready to, um, to feel so fragile um, and use German all the time. I was feeling really embarrassing because of my accent, so I decided to stick to English. And I developed a new Elisa, basically, which means that now, uh, yes, Italian is the most emotionally bounded language in my brain. But I also evolved in English, so to say. So there is some sort of English Elisa that uh, sometimes want to write their own poem. And yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's like in the film Split, when there are, yeah. you know, different personalities. But I hope I'm still, you know, uh -huh. keeping all of them together in one healthy subject. But I've heard that quite often, that people who speak multiple languages mm -hmm. feel like slightly different people in different mm -hmm. languages, so it does make sense. <laughs> The next sentence is, right now I'm most fascinated by... Um, mental health discoveries in my research field. Okay, yeah, we will talk about that in a bit. And the last question is, I know it's time to call it a day when... I cannot drink another coffee because I won't sleep. <laughs> so if I can still drink coffee, so it is like still coffee time, then I mean, I know that I can get some, some energies out and do something new. But if I feel tired and it's too late for another coffee, maybe sleep time. 
So I should start switching on my lavender can- candles and do my beauty care rituals. What time is it for you? So what sh- what time would be the last time for you to have a coffee? Uh, I try. This is, you know, part of my new uh, ideas for 2024, to have my last coffee not later than two right now. Mm-hmm. And normally the effect stays with me because I am normally quite passionate and enthusiastic about what I'm doing. Tier uh, 22, I will say, and then I slowly start to my daily decay, so to say. Uh, but when there is something interesting, I feel like I get this extra kick of energy, mm-hmm. I will say. But that's the moment around like 10-ish, so that I'm like, okay, let me switch off, probably. Yeah. And uh, now we come to your scientific background. Um, if I understood correctly, uh, you only did your master's here in mm-hmm. Osnabrück, but did uh, your bachelor's somewhere else. So uh, how did you... Uh, discover cognitive science and how did you discover your institute? Maybe you can shortly tell us how you got here. That's an interesting story, actually, I hope. Um, so uh, for my bachelor's degree, I studied in my hometown. So I am Sicilian and I'm coming from Catania. Uh, Sicily is an island in the south of Italy. And I was studying communication and linguistics, basically. I did a lot of sociology, of cultural processes. So, for example, my uh, bachelor's um, thesis was about uh, Charlie Hebdo and the killings of January 2015. And I was really interested in that kind of um, mixture between science and real life, so to say. And then I started to uh, work at the same time while I was still a student uh, for a professor, which was the head of the neurocognitive department of the University of Catania. Her name is Renata Gambino. And um, we were mainly organizing conferences and events and seminars with professors coming all around the world, which were somehow connected to the cognitive reception of uh, cultural content. So eye tracking related to um, book reading in the evening or theater performances and so on. And I was madly in love with what I was doing and reading the papers to prepare myself for the for the conferences. And sometimes I had a few questions. Uh, for the for the professors there, that's also how I met, for example, Professor Semiyazaki, which is the head of what nowadays we will call neuroesthetics. And I also met a few professors, actually, that were teaching at the University of Osnabrück. Uh, so Professor Alexander Bergs and Mark Tanner. Um, so one day I just opened the, the door of the office and um, Renata, so Professor Gambino, I mean, I used to call her Renata because we have a very good relationship, was there. And she just told me, have you ever considered to study cognitive science? It was like out of the blue, out of the bluest point of the sky. And and I said, not really. I don't even know, you know, what, what you're talking about as a, as a program, as a study program. I just knew the discipline. And she turned and laptop and said, hey, there's this program in Osnabrück. Why don't you apply? I actually did apply and I left the country two months after. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's, that's how I started. It was a little bit challenging at first. 
um, because of two aspects specifically. First of all, I will say that there is a different in the approach toward studying when you compare Italy and Germany. And the second difference was the domain itself. I feel like humanities are more explanatory, while with neuroscience, so what I've been doing recently, you need to go straight to the point. And that's something I was really bad at at the beginning. So the first time I took action and cognition, which was like my first exam, I got a 3.7. And and I went there and I was like, what am I doing wrong? And, and the professor told me, you don't get to the point. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult for me to, to to understand that it was really true, but it was how I used to approach problems related, I don't know, to religion, to the perception of modern satire. You don't have data, so you have to navigate around the problem, so to say. And yeah, so I studied a lot of neurobiology and neuroanatomy to, to get the foundations of what I wanted to learn. And then I feel like I, um, I've been quite patient with myself, or at least I tried. And what I haven't done maybe in the best way, and I will use as a suggestion for future Kaxi, is to try to uh, put our beautiful research domain into the right perspective. And what I, what I mean is that um, I always had the feeling that I didn't know enough. And quite a lot hyper-talented colleagues of mine had the same feeling. Mm-hmm. When I was done with my studies and I could have maybe a more objective look at what I had been doing as a, as a master's student here in Osnabrück, I kind of realized that the problem is that there are so many disciplines all connected by the label cognitive science that can be a wonderful source for brainstorming, but they can also easily create the sense of inadequacy if you misunderstand your role there and you kind of think that you're supposed to know everything. So I feel like the biggest distinction will be between AI or machine learning oriented mm-hmm. people and more um, empirical or philosophical students. And yeah, I feel like I will never be incredibly good at machine learning or AI related cognitive science because it's not even what I want to do. And now that I'm almost 30, I can say that that's okay. And yeah, so this will be my suggestion for younger Lisa and for the other younger Lisas that are studying with cognitive science right now. Whatever you decide to study, that's okay. You don't have to be proficient with psychology, philosophy, linguistics, AI. I mean, navigate this enormous sea, but I mean, do not pretend that you can always swim. Sometimes it's okay to take a break. And coming to your own um, research now, or what you've done in your master's thesis, can you put it into really simple terms as if you were explaining it to someone who has never heard of Parkinson's disease and your specific, well, interest in it? Mm, my perspective, the perspective that I developed as young scientist when it comes to cognitive science is based on the concept of embodied cognition. I do believe that everything is connected and I think it is absolutely worth investing on that. So this is the the, the first line, so to say. Uh, Parkinson's disease has been defined as a motor disorder for quite a lot of time. If you ask people around, they may still give you the same answer. 
And even scientifically, if you have a look at descriptions, so we are not just talking about conversations with our family, but really scientifically, it will be defined as a um, disorder of extrapyramidal neurons. What will follow is like a dopamine imbalance, which normally is mentioned quite often, and we will quite quickly move to the past compacta of the substantia nigra. Can you put it into more simple terms as well? Or even... Um, so like, if, how would you mm -hmm. explain it to maybe a child 12, 13 years of age? Because I would assume they don't know the terms. Okay, so we we move now to, to children. Okay, um, let's imagine... Okay, now I will imagine like a fictional dialogue with the child. Um, so probably um, your teacher asked you last week or I don't know, last month to write down an essay on your holiday trips with your family or to do a drawing of, you know, a beautiful landscape, whatever. I, I, I hope you are like familiar with one of these tasks and I, I hope the child will agree with that. And then I will say basically what I, what I do in my everyday life with my job is that I invite people to a specific lab and instead of asking them to write an essay of what they've been doing or create a drawing, so a visual representation of that, I let their brain speak for themselves. Now the brain is not using the same languages that I would use with the person. So I have to find a way to translate what the, what the brain is saying. And that's why I use a computer and I use a methodology that is called electroencephalography, which sounds probably to a 10-year-old quite, like, quite a difficult concept, but it's not because the language that I use with the brain is electrical current, so electro. Encephalo simply means brain-related. And graphi is coming from graphos, so is ancient Greek. Uh, I will mention Greek a few times because, I mean, I studied Greek and Latin at school, so mm -hmm. it will stay with me forever. So um, grapho uh, means to write. So we are simply writing down the trace of electric current coming from the brain. Now, once I have this writings, which will be like the same essay that you and your classmates submitted last week about your holiday, I compare them. I compare them and I can see what is similar and what is different. And when you create this comparison between healthy subjects and Parkinson patient, you can see some standard differences and then compare different Parkinson patients as well and try to understand better how to help them based on those differences. I hope this is like yeah, that, a little bit more, more simple than dopamine and frequency it is, bands. Yeah, definitely. Um, you've also mentioned that in, well, the usual understanding of Parkinson's disease is more on the motor level. Mm -hmm. So motor level would mean, or what would motor level mean, for example, in Parkinson's disease? Um, we will talk about freezing of gait, for example, um, which is the, which is a very common phenomenon. So sometimes Parkinson patients cannot perform a fluent movement or cannot start a movement fluently. And that's what we call freezing of gait. Or um, they are slower when it comes to the performance of a movement, which is called bradykinesia. 
Um, yeah, so those are the main motor symptoms. So there can be shaking and trembling. And what I what I'm interested in, and I feel like this is possible just because there's a general attention, okay, on that in the um, in the research field right now, is the non motor dimension of Parkinson. And there's so much going on uh, under the surface. And I think that's what was really interesting for me and the reason why I decided to invest around two years on the investigation of Parkinson non-motor symptoms that have different categories as well. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what those categories are? Mm -hmm. So um, basically, um, Parkinson himself, which was the person who, who wrote the essay on Parkinson on a shaky palsy in 1817, um, declared that, for example, um, senses and intellect are not injured in Parkinson. This was the first official claim, which was already disclaimed a few decades ago, and that's what we are working on. So, um, for example, olfaction can be quite commonly impacted in Parkinson. Mm -hmm. um, the range of severity changes a lot, so they can have just impaired olfaction or sometimes it can be almost impossible for them to recognize odors properly. What does impaired olfaction mean in general? So do they just not smell? Can they exactly. not dif differentiate different mm -hmm. smells or is it um, all of it? <laughs> it really depends on the on the clinical profile of the of the patient. So some of them, uh, they have like normal functions. So there are like no problems related to the quantitative or qualitative assessment of the of odors. For others, it's reduced. For um, others, it's significantly reduced. And then there are some patients that struggle maybe with specific smells. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and the reason for that is that actually one common background theory on Parkinson is Bragg's six-stage hypothesis. And he mentioned basically that probably Parkinson may be interpreted as an immune response to a neurotoxin that is coming from the outside world. The reason why olfaction is the sense impacted is that this toxin will find its entrance through the body from the nose. Okay. Yeah. And that's also why the symptoms may be so different because the impact of the toxin with the nose, of course, depends on so many environmental factors that, I mean, make it different to quantify what is going on. Then following uh, the trajectory, actually, that Bragg described, we have uh, gut disorders. Uh, then there are like disorders related to the circadian rhythm. So a lot of people think that uh, Parkinson patients do not sleep well because they have Parkinson. So it's a second order effect. Mm -hmm. But actually, sleep disturbances are already part of the spectrum of Parkinson. Do they just not sleep well? Do they wake up a lot? How And how far do they sleep different from a non-Parkinson patient? Uh, restless leg syndrome is more common. And then um, the quality of the sleep itself is impacted. So they do not get enough restorative sleep, so to say. Um, they have recurrent awakenings during the night. So, yeah, again, it depends on the on the profile, I will say. So if you had the chance to have a look in an fMRI, for example, of a, of a patient with Parkinson. So an fMRI is, let's say, the photos of, of the brain, because let's try again to give it as simple as possible. EEG will be a song, 
because we are having a look at the temporal dimension, so we focus on the duration of like something, while fMRI will more be like a video of it, like a photo. And we can certainly say that the dysfunctions that we are like discussing right now correlate with certain lesions in the brain. So depending on the lesion, you will find certain dysfunction to be more or less prominent. So on the cognitive level, we had um, olfactory impairment, sleep impairment. Uh, there are also psychiatric features as well. For example, so depression is one of them and apathy is another one. Um, and it's super interesting to try to disambiguate clinical depression from depression as a key feature of Parkinson. And sometimes, of course, they, they, they mix mm -hmm. because the disease itself then um, can elicit quite, quite heavy causes to um, our mental health. Yeah. And then what I'm doing, so now we go to what, what I've been doing, um, is that another, another domain of non-motor symptoms are mild cognitive impairment. And there we have, for example, problems related to memory, learning, visual recognition, and attention. Are there any, um, I mean, I, I, I'm going back to some, some basics maybe, um, are there any risk factors? Like, is, the, is it clear that, like, is Parkinson's disease something that runs in a family, or do we know anything about that? Um, how... how uh, can like assess the risk of an individual person to, to get Parkinson's disease? Um, I will try to answer this question because it's a super complex one and I think I'm not like hyper qualified for that, but I will still try to tell you what I think. Mm -hmm. um, of course, uh, if Parkinson is already in your heritage, there's a, there's a correlation with that, <clears throat> which is normally stronger, for example, for Alzheimer. Mm -hmm. So when, in general, we have a look at pathological populations and neurodegenerative disorders, um, there is a genetic correlation, no doubt about it. Um, then uh, there are also other factors, actually, that can play a role. So I feel like there was, for example, a case study related to, to Italy. That's why I, I remember that. And it was about, um, I think, some young people that were trying to create some drugs at home, actually. And they, um, they used the wrong components and the toxin actually uh, caused them some Parkinsonian symptoms. So I feel like we need always to understand, first of all, what we are talking about, because we can have Parkinsonism or Parkinson disease. Mm -hmm. And when just the motor symptoms are prominent, we will talk about Parkinsonism. So this kind of um, motor features and where the entire spectrum is there, we will talk about Parkinson disease. And... Maybe certain, even certain regions of the world have an incidence which is higher, but um, is a is a quite complex, um, I think, environment to explain and to and to navigate. What I what I can tell you is that um, what I find fasc fascinating is that with EEG. I could detect some traces of possible Parkinson evolution from your brain before the onset of motor symptoms. 
So you can kind of, early, before the onset, mm -hmm. recognize Parkinson mm -hmm. disease in the brain. Yeah, that's exactly what, I mean, not maybe me, me, but that, that's exactly what uh, researchers are doing right now um, when it comes to Parkinson. In the way you usually find irregular patterns or, well, functionings in the brain. Um, so um, what has been used in my uh, research field currently um, is an alteration of some event-related potentials. This is going to be like scientific, but let's say that they are specific signatures or biomarkers uh, in the EEG signal. So for a person that never saw EEG, just imagine that in front of you, you have a screen full of lines, <laughs> parallel lines. And every inch of this line is an electrode which is placed on your scalp. And they are somehow representing the electrical current that we were trying to describe to the 10-year-old 10 minutes ago. Uh, now, if we put all these lines together and we try to create a temporal dimension in which we know when a certain stimulus was presented or a certain function was elicited, like, for example, novelty detection or a specific form of learning or the recall of a memory. At some point, the brain will react to that stimulus with a function. And we can kind of measure that in terms of polarity of the wave that we see, uh, in terms of um, voltage, so how strong is the wave that we are going to see in the signal, and of course, uh, in terms of time. So for example, when it comes to novelty detection, the first uh, strong reaction will be around 200 milliseconds. And that's when the brain probably will start to think, hey, um, the stimulus that I've just seen is kind of similar to the ones that I've seen before, but it's not exactly the same. So the brain is starting to grasp mm -hmm. that something is... Mm. And then around 300 milliseconds, so it's just 100 milliseconds more, the brain is like, hmm, you cannot trick me. This is not the same. And what is different actually is that this dot is blue and it's not pink any longer. Now, uh, what I just described, so this, of course, fictional communication uh, between, between these brain waves, it's what is called in, in my research field um, event-related potential, because it's a potential, okay, so it's a response that we get, just because a specific event was placed there. And as a scientist, I do that, of course, in the lab, but I mean... We do that because it is then simple to isolate the function. But we have to imagine that our brain does that every day, all day long. Basically, whenever we see something in our environment, our brain is like, oh, something happens. Yeah. Oh, I'm reacting on it. Yeah. And they also mix together because mm -hmm. probably in our real life, there are a lot of functions that, uh, that we need at the same time. Now, when it comes to Parkinson, for example, the second component that I mentioned that uh, is called P300 will almost always have a reduced amplitude. So it will be weaker. So yeah. 300 milliseconds after you saw a stimulus, mm -hmm. your response in the brain is weaker compared to humans with non-Parkinson disease. Brains. In novelty detection. So mm -hmm. it's not just a stimulus in general, but it's an altered stimulus. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, you use some paradigms, and one of them could be the oddball paradigm. As the name suggests, you simply, you simply have a set of canonical stimuli 
which may be, I don't know, pink dots if you're using uh, visual stimuli or you can use different types of vibration as I did for my master's study. Um, also tones, right? So always mm -hmm. have the same tone and then mm -hmm. an odd one. Yeah, basically, if you if you grasp the concept, you can just play with whatever you want to play on the on the sensory domain and use different channels. But the point is that normally you have the 70% of the standard uh, stimuli and then uh, you have the 30% of them or less. You can also slow down till the 10%, which is awkward. How do we define awkward? In order to be acceptably awkward, it just one feature should be different. If it is more than one, the brain will think that is another thing. Mm. But if it is just one feature that is different, the brain will be a little bit confused for a moment and say, hey, I mean, this two looks similar, but I mean, not, you know, identical. And that's what we will call novelty detection. So and N200 and P300 are the most common correlates, um, neural correlates to the specific function. So, for example, when we put it back to a practical example, when mm -hmm. you have blue dots, um, changing it to pink would be one component, but mm -hmm. changing it to pink rectangle would be two components. So not, well, the same type of stimulus you would try to get. Yeah, it will basically it will basically recall a different function in the brain. Mm -hmm. So something will happen, but something um, more difficult for a scientist to to investigate. We we need to keep it simple if you want to find something out. So sometimes. I think from the outside world, it looks like we are doing, we are using boring setups. And I understand that in comparison with reality, um, they may look a little bit boring. And when I started, I wanted to put a mobile EEG on my backpack and measure um, electrical activity uh, in the outside world. But then it's, it's difficult to draw conclusions because there's so much going on that you cannot talk any longer about causation. Uh, you talked um, a bit about, or we just talked about uh, the visual domain but you already said that you were working like with sensory Tactile. input um can you maybe explain why you did that and how like uh what the equivalent of a of a blue dot is uh, <laughs> if you if you're in the tactile dimension um so first of all i did that because it is really cool <laughs> <laughs> um i feel like A common problem that I that I observe in the scientific domain right now is that we have amazing new technologies that would have an enormous potential, but sometimes the experimental designs are super old and obsolete sometimes. I would say especially in certain domains. Don't ask me which ones, I don't want to say that. Um, but yeah, so... What I did in my point of view is a way to was a way to bring novelty to something that was a little bit old fashioned because the oddball paradigm is old but gold. Okay, we are not ready to let it go. However, the old paradigm has been used with visual and auditory stimuli um, almost all the time for 20 years, 30 years or so, which means that uh, performing that in the tactile modality, first of all, is very interesting because it allows us to understand that the function itself is dissociated from the channel you use, right? It's the same. Then there are some modifications related to the tactile uh, modality, for example. There are some early components, so let's say some reactions of the brain that we do not observe with the visual modality, but the process itself is the same. 
Now, if you, as Elisa mentioned, you can use a different in tone if you're using the auditory modality. Um, when you want to use um, touch, you have a few options. Option number one, same body location difference in intensity of the vibration. Option number two, same location difference in duration of the stimuli or frequency. Last option, which actually has been used quite often in my domain, is just target different body locations. So same vibration, for example, different body locations. And then you can measure how the topographical representation of that body location is impacting the receptivity of the signal itself. Okay, and were you then looking like, or is that something you came up with and you had to check if that's like really an equivalent, that you can find like the same patterns, or did you just assume that and find out something new on based on, on your data? Actually, my supervisor wanted, Professor Peter Koenig, he wanted exactly to investigate uh, the difference between uh, body locations. So this was the research question that I had by default when I started my project. Then I added, the, you know, uh, mild cognitive impairments and I went into the difference of some neurotransmitters in Parkinson. But this is this was my very pragmatic starting point. So we actually implemented the field space belt. I don't know if you have ever heard of that, but it's... Um, Could you maybe explain to our yeah. listeners especially? So um, it's a belt, like a very canonical belt made of a stretchable material, which does have different fabric tactile units that can be placed in cardinal directions. They can be moved depending on what we want to do with them. And it has been used originally in order to help blind subjects during navigation. And then Professor Koenig started to think, okay, let's see if maybe it can be useful for Parkinson patients as well. Because they struggle with freezing of gait and sometimes they cannot walk. So maybe a certain frequency or a certain duration of vibration can help them out. And that was a project going on in 2019 actually with um, a colleague of mine, which is called Elena During, and she's now a PhD at the Center for Neurodegenerative Disorders in Köln, I think. Now, um, going back to your question, what, what we did when we wanted to perform an oddball using tactile stimuli was to create a wristband and an ankle bracelet and not just a belt and perform the very same vibration. Mm -hmm. In order to create the oddball, because it, it's still supposed to be an oddball, um, we had a difference in intensity, which means that we wanted to check how different areas reacted to the same vibration. But something else that we could have done was, for example, to invite the participants to the lab and simply send the vibration uh, for the 70% of the experiment to the wrist and then uh, 30% to the ankle. So then the vibration is always exactly the same and the difference is in the location. This will be a tactile oddball as well. And what did you find in Parkinson's patients? So what you just mentioned that Peter Koenig had the idea that those vibrations might also help in Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. patients, not only in blind subjects. Um, why might that be? Or what was the idea behind 
starting this project. The idea behind was that um, also my project, we are implying that attention is impaired for Parkinson patients. So we have to take it as default knowledge based on previous literature. Uh, walking is related to automatic attention. For us, it's um, automatic. We don't think about that, but there's a set of movements and orders, actually, that are like coming from the brain and we are like performing. Now the imbalance that we notice in walking is reflected by certain frequency bands in the brain that we can analyze through EEG that are not aligning correctly. Which means that you can, if you can find something that is training their attention, so to say, and helping them concentrating and performing a set of orders or commands, then it doesn't matter any longer what we are talking about, if it is like motor or non-motor. And in Parkinson, this is particularly salient because um, I've been talking about frequency bands. I don't know how, cre how clear this is, but let's say that we can subdivide EEG signal in different sub-box mm -hmm. or let's say lines. Imagine that as a rainbow. Okay, and every color will be like a frequency. And a frequency is simply like some boundaries that we create depending on the spectral analysis of, of the signal to define uh, what is going on in the brain. So, for example, we observe certain frequencies just when we are asleep. Uh, some others are typical of uh, wakeful life. Uh, I've been working with them because I also did some uh, research in sleep and dreams in general. But going back to the topic, because if I start to talk about a lot of stuff, I, I, I actually get confused. Um, it has been proved, for example, that there is a persistence of better frequency in Parkinson. And it was already proven in 2010, 2014. Now, this persistence is observable when a different type of dynamics or switch or um, combination of waves <laughs> should be observed in healthy patients, both with motor command and non-motor commands, which means that if the brain is reacting in the same way, maybe we can use an attentional task or a vibration that is like guiding them as a way to um, make even the walking path fluent. So it's an hybridation between cognitive and motor, basically. You create some sort of um, artificial guidance for the brain so that the gait can synchronize based on that. When it comes to that project, which wasn't my project, but that's how I understood that. Yeah, are there any other like approaches at treating like the symptoms of it are there any drugs or is that like uh, yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> and like can you treat it or just or can you cure it or just treat the symptoms I treat for now yeah and something that is really interesting is that the um, the component the most famous component that has been used in Parkinson research as far as medicaments are concerned is um, levodopa or L-dopa, which will be like the grandfather of dopamine. That's how we will describe that, I will say, my research field. 
However, the new gossip is that um, Levodopa is not just a grandfather of like dopamine, which, as I tried to uh, explain before, is the main actor in Parkinson, but he's also the grandfather of noradrenaline. So it's kind of the counter, mm. isn't noradrenaline the counter to dopamine in a way? Um, I they are not exactly you know okay. fighting each other like heavily, but I mean sometimes they can they can they can have some contrast so to say. But I mentioned noradrenaline specifically because this is something that is getting a lot of attention in Parkinson's research right now, because the um, the role of noradrenaline in Parkinson's disease may also uh, explain partially the reduction in dopamine. So we always focused on the reduction of dopamine and also, to be honest, a specific type of dopamine following nigrostriatal pathways, which is like a specific, let's say, road <laughs> that this type of um, dopamine followed to get the um, component of the brain that I mentioned before. So this region of the brain that, of course, is responsible for motor symptoms. And as I said, this is the stereotypical description of Parkinson. And then we have noradrenaline, which will have a different distribution in the brain, which will have correlation then with the functioning of um, dopamine itself and will be maybe quite, quite useful when it comes to the development of a possible explanation for difficulties in learning and um, top-down attention in Parkinson. Because then dopamine can explain part of it, but not completely. Because dopamine is more involved in what we will call sequential um, processing of a stimulus. So it will be the initial part of uh, the attentive process where what the brain is doing is putting information all together as they have the same weight and the same value, and we pile them up. Then at some point, something becomes salient, and we cannot proceed like that because it will be too slow. Uh, we will have over-redundant information, and we will not get what we want. So what really helped me out in understanding this process is um, let's imagine like a forest in front of us. And first you need a representation of the trees that you can see in front of you. Then maybe uh, you close your eyes for a second. And if you have to recall, I don't know, a mushroom. I told you that I like to pick mushrooms, right? Uh, if you have to recall where a specific mushroom was, you need to have a look at the details of one specific tree, which means that you go back to the same landscape to the same set of information but you are cutting out probably I don't know the lateral trees because you remember somehow that it was in the middle of your um, um, receptive field and then you go for the details let's say that in order to switch from this type of processing to the second type of processing that I described we need to switch from certain areas of the brain to other areas of the brain and from certain functions to others is some sort, some sort of natural evolution of the process in which in order to face a higher level of complexity, we need to let go of quantity. So do less, but do it better, <laughs> basically. I don't even know if this answers your question any longer, but uh, yeah, um, that's how you perform a tactile oddball and that's how you try to um, read the result through EEG. Uh, I mean, we 
got the idea that uh, this research field is, is still very active. I mean, you are doing research in it. Are there any uh, recent discoveries that are really, really interesting to you? Um, a lot of them, actually. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so, uh, can I mention two? Yes, of course. <laughs> So um, first of all, I will I would like to I would like to point out that the um, the researcher that is doing the most in this domain is called Solis v Professor Solis Vivanco, and is the first one that managed actually to run uh, experiments via EEG and prove that P three hundred may be a use of a useful biomarker for Parkinson. He started in two thousand eleven and is still conducting experiments. I feel like the last publication was in two thousand twenty one. And that's beautiful because I feel like in the 80s, 90s, researchers started to say, you know, we could use EEG for that. But proving that is a different story. <laughs> so this is, first of all, let's mention him because he needs to be mentioned. There will be no master thesis. There will be no podcast today without him. Then I would like to move to Professor Sabine Krabbe, um, which is a professor um, at the Max Planck Institute uh, in collaboration with the Center for Neurodegenerative Disorders in Köln and Bonn, actually. And uh, what she's doing, actually, is that she's using um, animal studies in order to investigate neuropsychiatric features in Parkinson. Mm. This is unbelievably interesting, and I think that the biggest challenge is to disambiguate depression because of Parkinson, for example, and depression as a part of the spectrum of Parkinson. And the fact that she's doing that using animal studies make it like, please let me know what you find out because this is like very interesting. And... Um, But when it comes to discoveries, because you asked about discoveries, so you want some data on the table, and I will try to do that. Um, there is a preview of an article which was out, um, today is the 19th, right? 19th of... Yes. Which was out two days ago. <laughs> you you asked me for the late ones, and no, I, I'm doing my own work. <laughs> it's the latest. And it's about... Um, impairment of alpha frequencies in in parkinson so in my master thesis i mentioned beta uh, frequencies and how there's too much beta there and the reason is that beta bands for example correlate with a uh, consolidation of information so the explanation behind too much beta and parkinson would be they struggle to keep a certain set of information and that's why novelty or updates is so difficult because they are already spending more computational capacity on that one. The new findings are also about alpha. It's like, by the way, I mean, there was this hypothesis that even alpha was impaired. Guess what? <laughs> I conducted a study on that. Um, Welcome to 2024. <laughs> Just for people who are not into neuroscience, what are alpha waves normally connected to? Alpha waves are uh, connected to the very um, easy-peasy initial processing that I described before when I was talking about the forest. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if beta is consolidation, alpha is creating the reference for the consolidation. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit the basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. In novelty detection, we talk about alpha-gamma coupling. So the coupling of the two frequencies when we need to detect something new. So alpha will be the um, 
well-known book you have been reading uh, for the last two years and Gamma is the other one that you want to start but you don't start because you feel guilty about the other one on the table and you're like, oh my God, I promised myself I would have finished that one first. The coupling between old and new, so to say. Okay, I think like with the time in mind, we have to come to an end here. I think we could talk about it for hours more, but... Uh, This is the end, my <laughs> only friend. Um, at the end of each episode, we ask our guests uh, which fields of cognitive science are the most relevant to the topic. And uh, I would assume that it's probably neuroscience, yes. but are there other uh, fields of cognitive science that you think that um, this field benefits from? Mm -mm. So you could definitely use AI and machine learning or I mean, I could maybe have a brainstorming session with them and see if I can use actually their methodology in order to interpret my data. I feel like there are a lot of beautiful and amazing insights that are coming when it comes to data evaluation from that domain and um, even cognitive psychology for sure. Mm -hmm. I will always try to connect all the domains ever again mm -hmm. together for whatever topic. I think that's the beauty in cognitive science that you yeah. get an insight into all those different fields and then can connect them to your own topic. Mm -hmm. And everybody can contribute somehow. Yeah, exactly. Mm, when a person has listened to today's episode and made it to the end, what would be one thing or two things they should definitely remember and take out of our conversation? Um, do not base your scientific judgment on the appearance of a disease. Dig deeper. Thanks. That's a really beautiful uh, closing word. <laughs> I can uh, be so poetic sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for talking to us, for coming here and jumping into the scary seat of the guest. Thank uh, you again for the invitation. It was really a pleasure talking to you and well, we hope you enjoyed your first experience in being <laughs> a, guest, a guest to a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually did. That's so Thank good you very much. <laughs> When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the website of a Cognitive Science Student Journal. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw, produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne, produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.